Welcome back to Expanding the Continuum, where we explore the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to intimate and patriarchal violence and the intersections with HIV. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. Thanks for joining us. So today we are here to talk about PrEP and intimate partner violence in the context of reproductive health and rights. And I'm so excited to have Lisa Diane White from Sister Love and Savannah Brown from Black Women's Blueprint with me today for this conversation. So welcome, Lisa and Savannah. Thank you, Ashley. I'm really excited and looking forward. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So let me start with you, Lisa. Tell us a little bit about the work of Sister Love. Well, Sister Love is a reproductive justice and HIV AIDS service organization. And uh, we advocate on behalf of women, their families, and children against the eradication of HIV and other um, issues as far as our reproductive justice in our communities and within our families. And we were founded in 1989 and by Dazon Dixon Diallo. And we have been providing housing at some point, no longer now. We provide HIV testing, counseling, policy, advocacy, research, community-based participatory research, and other collaborations and partnerships to advance the rights of women and children and their families. Thanks, Lisa. The work of Sister Love is so incredible. I mean, we've been in partnership with you all, um, gosh, for over a decade now um, through our work at, at, at NNEDV on our Positively Safe project. And it's just always so inspiring to hear what you all are doing and the connections you have across the, the field and in the communities. Um, but what I've really been interested in over the years is your healthy love parties. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how how do you incorporate um, conversations on intimate partner violence? Well, a healthy love party began as a homegrown intervention uh, in people's homes, and we were trying to figure out how to educate women around how to protect themselves from the transmission of HIV. We also wanted to open up conversations about HIV because women just weren't talking about it. And women weren't included in the conversations around HIV early on because um, everything was so male, gay male focused. And so as we began to do more advocacy and education, we needed to take that into the homes. And we also needed to have conversations about sex. And to talk about safer sex activities and sex, you had to talk about those things in the context of relationship. And so when we begin to understand, we begin to play some of the games that we created about how you talk about sex, what is the language you use, women begin to discuss some of the language and behaviors that impacted the question, is your love healthy? And we begin to understand, is your love healthy if you don't have agency around your body and your sexuality? Is your love healthy if your partner is harming you? Is your love healthy in the intimacy of your home to be able to discuss condom use, safer sex, and how to protect yourself? So in having those conversations about is your love healthy, we begin to understand from women about the fact that their relationships were not healthy. And then they begin to talk about the things that were happening in their relationship. So those ongoing partnerships around intimate partner violence helped give us the language the interventions, the conversations, and the responses as we learned about power and control and how all of those things impacted your ability to practice safer sex, 
to practice living with HIV, to practice disclosure, to understand stigma and how your diagnosis might be used against you as a power and control methodology. So we had to understand what power and control meant and how it impacted our ability to have healthy, loving relationships. So that's how it began to be. Uh, We were in conversations because it's just a natural place when talking about intimate partnerships and relationships. And I think that's so important, the the, the piece around community and um, this really focusing on that community-based prevention, intervention piece, and helping women have those conversations um, around their relationships. Um, you know, and I, I know uh, Savannah, you all at Black Women's Blueprint do uh, work on intimate partner violence as well and sexual violence and have worked a lot in the community. But can you tell us a little bit about the work of Black Women's Blueprint? Sure. Yeah, it's been exciting to hear. Um... Lisa, you talk about sister love and the founding and the need for your organization. And I'll share about Black Women's Blueprint. We are a civil and human rights-based organization that centers the needs of survivors, of women and girls. And we've been doing that since 2008. Um, And our work has really been to um, build the capacity and strengthen Brooklyn communities through our projects, um, defending the rights of women and girls. We um, built a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2016, which was really about ensuring bodily safety and manifesting the vision of the community, the vision that the community had around violence prevention and intervention. And in addition to that, we create and transfer knowledge and expand and democratize theory and also pedagogies towards how we actually end gender-based violence and intervene around gender-based violence. And we work across difference. We work across generations, across genders, across borders. Um, And our work is really rooted in cultural traditions that affirm the dignity and rationale of human life, but also look at sovereignty and dignity for women specifically. Black Women's Blueprint operates as a lifeline that brings doulas and midwives and birth workers to under-resourced communities where women have little or no access to reproductive, sexual, maternal um, health care, or often any health care at all, we work to save the lives of women and girls and babies on site with hands-on home interventions. And that includes um, our healing and counseling services, our prenatal and postnatal crisis support. Um, and we also do training. We lead um, teaching institutions around uh, and hospital staff around how to how to work with diverse and cultural communities, um, especially in, in global pandemics and national um, crises and health crises that we've been seeing um, more and more of. And the last thing I'll say is that we, um, on who Black Women's Blueprint is, we deploy sexual violence prevention and reproductive maternal health services, um, as well as education and advocacy to a combined 3,000 local New York City-based community members um, annually. And we do that through a number of methods, both virtual and on-site um, services that we provide as an organization. Yeah, the work they all do is so incre- doing is so incredible. Um, you mentioned something uh, around access to medical care. And, you know, often survivors of violence don't seek medical support due to really many circumstances outside of their control, but also due to trauma and the fear of re-victimization and for Black women, this is compounded by, you know, historical and even the current trauma that's inflicted by the medical community. So talk to us a little bit about Sisters Van. So how does Sisters Van help to fill a gap in medical support and create space for healing? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. So our mobile healing unit, Sisters Van, 
hosts regular healing circles in and around um, Brooklyn and also the five boroughs. We've also done national um, trips, New Orleans, Alabama, Washington, D.C., Michigan. We've been all over the place, New Jersey, providing comprehensive um, individual counseling services through our liberatory healing and justice um, frameworks and offering non-traditional practices that are hosted by maternal health practitioners and clinicians. Um, and what's really exciting about Sisters Van is that it's a fully wheelchair accessible mobile unit that's designed with the vision um, of survivors of sexual violence, of trafficking, of reproductive violence and violations and physical abuse, many of whom have expressed they've avoided contact with the medical system, especially in extreme circumstances or due to fears of re-traumatization and stigma. Um, and so the Sisters Van really fills this gap by now creating access to holistic support services and care. It is a trauma-informed, survivor-centered um, prevention mechanism that's implemented by us at Black Women, by survivors, for survivors. Our mobile healing unit is also all gender-affirming. It's an all-gender-affirming space that centers the experiences and needs of Black women and femmes um, to close the gap and fill the need for support services across the full spectrum of both sexual and reproductive health. Um, it's a survivor-ran service, so it provides multiple populations with care um, from different vantage point, um, different vantage points from pregnant people to sex workers to youth. Um, it's been serving young moms, pregnant women and their children. Um, and it's really a, a major intervention. We deliver, you know, really concrete material needs and items like food, healthy food, um, PPE, um, personal protective equipment, resources, on-site crisis support, those interventions, hygiene kits, feminine hygiene products for survivors, um, young and old. Um, and so it's really exciting for us because from one hand to another, from one survivor's hand to another, these materials like contraception and plan Bs and baby diapers and adult diapers and all of the things that are needed across the full spectrum of life or the full life course um, are met by this initiative um, that is led by survivors from volunteers to staffing and even donors um, who participate in supporting the initiative. Thanks, Savannah. That's um, just so incredible to hear about. It's so empowering um, just to hear you speak about your your connection to the community in such a personal way um, and, and how people are able to access the support they need that really they are not able to get or or um, don't want to get from those traditional medical uh, providers. Um, but you did mention... You talked about um, maternal health um, and and working with um, uh, uh, those that are birthing, but we know that there are high rates of maternal mortality among Black and BIPOC uh, birthing persons. So how is Black Women's Blueprint addressing this? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a really important question, and I'm grateful that you asked. Um, in 2019, Black Women's Blueprint coined the phrase via a report and also through um, an institute, the Sexual Abuse to Maternal Mortality Pipeline. And really what the Sexual Abuse to Maternal Mortality Pipeline does is it shares and demonstrates substantial research um, identifying the, the consequences and really the impact of trauma, the lack of trauma-informed care, and the lack of trauma-informed services um, for Black women, for Indigenous women, for women of color, um, to really address um, issues of maternal mortality and maternal morbidity, morbidity, which is very, very present um, in our communities. So we're doing this through data-driven insights. We're doing it through 
service delivery by addressing um, the gap in the over 50 plus life-saving perinatal devices that Black and Indigenous people and people of color need, like blood pressure monitors, compression socks, breast pumps. We're doing trauma-informed trainings with hospitals and hospital networks. Um, We're looking at and assessing racial implicit bias and also gender bias. Um, We're doing um, landscape analysis and coalition building and working with churches and directly with impacted birthing families to address and turn the tide on maternal mortality, morbidity, unsafe and disrespectful childbirth that we've seen in various contexts. Um, That really comes from the deep historical roots of um, medical racism. That comes from the deep historical roots of patriarchy and its presence in the founding of gynecology. And so we're really bridging like this trauma-informed discussion and taking it to another level about what it looks like to to truly have co-designed, community-generated, evidence-based care models that integrate and disseminate lessons that we've learned from advocates about what structural change is needed in order to expand maternal health services, um, from services to providers to facilities even that serve and support um, survivors and that are co-created and co-designed by survivors. So we're doing cipher series, we're uh, unpacking and breaking down power and privilege and medical hierarchies, we're doing truth and reconciliation with clinics and hospitals where gendered racism and harm has occurred. Um, and we're thinking about how we build collaborative stakeholder sessions that redefine and create more um, maternal health care solutions that are survivor-oriented and centered. Um, so those are some of the things that we're doing from um, the services to the trainings to ciphers and coalition building across sectors. We're really talking about de-siloing movements and de-siloing the field in order to see um, a broader shift and transformation happen um, around these interdependent factors that affect maternal mortality and morbidity, um, including social determinants of health, right? And all of those aspects and how the, the pandemic itself has exacerbated those issues. So um, we're looking forward to seeing a change and seeing a shift and also bringing in more advocates who are interested in, in this intersection. And I'm, I've been pleased to see more advocates training as doulas and picking up on um, oh, this bridging between um, reproductive health and maternal health and um, survivor advocacy. I, I think that that is a, an incredible shift that we've seen as a result of that um, 2019 report and the trainings that we've been able to deliver with coalitions even. So I think there's hope um, and light at the end of the tunnel that we're excited about. Yeah, I think it's such an important conversation um, for domestic violence organizations to be having and, and things to be considering and working with um, survivors and those that are are pregnant um, and, and what kind of work they're doing within their community um, to really implement trauma-informed care across the board at different service providers. Um, and I've, I've, it's so funny. You mentioned like, you know, the incorporation of like doulas and, and whatnot in services. And I've met so many more doulas doing anti-violence work in the past two years than I had in the previous probably 10 that I've been doing this work. So, um, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the impact of intimate partner violence on maternal mortality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, We've seen across time that there are higher rates of maternal suicide and maternal homicide. Um, And so that's a really sharp, I think, example of the ways that intimate partner violence impacts um, maternal health and maternal mortality and morbidity. 
But then even deeper than that, the ways that intimate partner violence increases during pregnancy, issues of power and control, Lisa, you talked about that earlier, increase um, during pregnancy um, and increase around reproductive health issues in general, right? So um, withholding partners, we found that um, in our research our studies and testimonies that partners withhold um, contraception withhold um, prenatal vitamins, withhold um, medications, withhold um, the use of condoms and protective measures, right? Um, And so we've seen how intimate partner violence actually takes another form. It takes another shape in the midst of um, the full reproductive life course. Um, And exacerbated issues of trauma and PTSD also affect um, and increase higher rates of maternal mortality and morbidity. When we look at the causes of maternal mortality and morbidity, it's pulmonary embolism, it's hemorrhaging, it's um, cardio, cardiac issues, um, it, there's mental health issues, all of that, all of those factors get um, intensified, exacerbated in the perinatal period. So in the preconception to postpartum periods, and we really have to be looking at this full spectrum and also the full life course, not just while the person is pregnant and their experiences of intimate partner violence, but the ways that intimate partner violence and trauma Um, And even childhood violence, right, lives in the body, stays in the body, right? Like it's it's consistently integrated in the body and affects um, in utero, affects affects gestation, affects um, one's ability to be pregnant, become pregnant or remain pregnant, right? And also to live through a pregnancy, right? All of those different components, there's this... um, pre-exposure to violence that I think um, also um, impacts maternal mortality and morbidity. And we really have to start looking at the causes of maternal mortality and morbidity from a robust landscape. And I think that also comes from um, how we look at review, how review committees are even taking up the issue in the index of maternal mortality and morbidity. What are the more expansive definitions that we can have? And how can we have a more um, trauma-informed and trauma-responsive um, strategy and interventions around what it looks like for pregnant people to be surrounded with support um, and to be asked the right questions from the ways that we screen for issues of abuse and violence Um, and what kinds of care programs we have in place for them. Um, I know that um, there's an issue around shelters and around safe housing and the intersection of rape crisis centers and pregnant women, domestic violence shelters and pregnant women. Um, And I think we need more um, full, responsive, proactive responses that are preventive um, and that look more deeply at the full um, kind of life experience of an individual um, so that we can take up these issues with with greater responsibility and care. Yeah, I, I think that's such a, a great point is this um, need for more conversation and prevention and this um, really, how, you know, how would I say this? Um, just, just more collaboration and coming together to address these issues um, in the anti-violence community. I think the other piece is, is um, just a better understanding of, um, of, of, uh, uh, you know, prenatal and perinatal for advocates to have these conversations and not thinking of just uh, pregnancy beyond, you know, really thinking of beyond the 10 months that someone is pregnant, but that that fourth trimester period yes. um, and the impact that that health of someone during their pregnancy has continuing on after the birth of a child. Um, so yeah, such a, such a great conversation to have around that. And I think this kind of segues into the conversation around reproductive rights. And often people think of reproductive rights as birth control or abortion access, family planning. Um, 
So how is how is PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis important to the fight for reproductive rights? Well, I think as we begin to look at PrEP and how it fits into that whole, I guess, you know, conversation around reproductive rights, it's about the ability to control whether or not you might be exposed to the transmission of HIV. And so, and when we look at who is getting PrEP and who is accessing PrEP, it is typically more men. It is typically uh, white men. And then it begins to trickle down to, you know, black men and then other communities of colors. And then women are way down on the list. And so I think the conversation about PrEP is an, it's an opportunity for you to control your exposure to the transmission of HIV. It, uh, it is something that you can take. It's a pill. You know, it may, you know, soon be an injection just based on ongoing research, but you can't even access it if you don't know about it. You cannot access it if your doctor doesn't know about it. And what we're finding is that there's just a lot of communities that are outside of maybe the infectious disease community that does not, that do not have information and conversation. And then again, you know, PrEP is something that it's user controlled. And so for uh, a person to be able to make a decision to take a pill to prevent the transmission of HIV with their partners in any situation where there's uh, intimate partner violence or there's power and control issues, if you have the ability to be able to take a pill daily, then you will be able to, you know, control the prevention of um, of maybe the transmission of HIV. And it has a uh, depending on what the use is, it can be effective anywhere from 91 to 100% effective. But I, I think the issue is, as we begin the conversation among women, is, you know, it takes longer to build up uh, PrEP inside the uh, the vaginal tissues. Um, it is It doesn't take the same amount of time in the anal tissues. And so it's about seven days, whether you're talking about anyone who is using PrEP. But when you're talking about women who were assigned female at birth, uh, it takes about 21 days for uh, the levels to build up sufficiently. And then you need to take it every day. So when we begin to look at the issues about, as I, as I heard Savannah talking about power and control and the control of birth control, these are just other issues that uh, can be used as a control um, methodology. And it's also something that then can increase stigma if you look at the medication, look it up and have an understanding that it may have some association with HIV. But again, it's a a powerful tool in the toolbox of prevention for, uh, you know, for women to be able to access and to use. And we want to make sure that you can't even talk about it or ask about it if you don't know about it. And you can't have a conversation with your provider if they don't know about it. And it's very hard for us in the community to build medical relationships and to have long-term relationships with a provider, which this pill does require you to do. You do need to see a provider every three months. You need to have an understanding as to whether or not you've been exposed to HIV during that period. Because if you have, then you need to go on treatment and you don't need to be on a one piece of a medication when you need a full spectrum of drugs to cover the prevention, I mean, the treatment of HIV. But it is a it a, again is a game changer in a toolbox for women if they're able to access it, utilize it, and control you know the transmission. It's something that uh, persons who are looking to be you know 
pregnant. It's something they can use, you know, if they're in relationship with someone who's living with HIV to, you know, for them to be able to prevent the transmission of HIV while they are having condomless sex during um, sexual acts. And, um, and it used to be, you know, harder for women to, uh, and other persons who are looking to conceive, to think about ways to make sure that they are not exposed to HIV if they are in partnership with someone who is living with HIV. And so as long as there's condomless sex, we've seen from the research that um, uh, PrEP is effective and it works. And it only works if you know about it, have access, and are able to use it. But I do, again, reaffirm that it is a, a game changer in the toolbox for prevention that's, that's person-controlled, that's woman-centered control, that is, you know, but giving all of the other factors that impact our lives, it is still a very promising tool for access to prevent the transmission of HIV. So we often say to people, do you know that there's a pill you can take to prevent HIV? And most often the response is no. And that answer should be yes. <laughs> and I would love for you to be able to make, if you do have a no, it should be an informed no. You've looked at the research. You've looked at the, the protocols. You understand the regimen that is being asked of you. you know, And you can make a decision, oh, this may not be for me. Um, but I also look at how we are responding as a community, a Black community around research and our participation in research and the harm that we have experienced as a community um, people don't trust something. Your family is like, you're taking a pill to do what? Where you know about that pill? Who they use it on? Whose body it's been in? So all of these things are important. But again, these things are important because when we take it and we understand how it impacts our bodies and we're able to inform communities about the effectiveness and the, you know, the, the pleasure and the increased, you know, concern about the transmission of HIV, we're constantly trying to make sure that we're having these conversations with people and we're having these conversations so that they can use it as an option. So when I asked you, do you know that there's a pill you can take to prevent HIV? The answer is yes. Yeah, I just want to build on that and appreciate that and name that with, as with all aspects, right, of this, this epidemic, um, severe disparities exist in the availability and uptake of PrEP among you know, minority populations, especially Black women who represent 60% of the epidemic among women. And Lisa, I, I was just listening to you talk and reflect and thinking about what I wanted to share. And I know that we're hyper kind of focusing on Black women and women in particular. And I think that that is fine, given that our organizations are centered around Black women's reproductive um, health and rights and justice. Um, and also given that women of color, particularly Black women, who are more vulnerable to HIV are prime candidates for PrEP, but there's also this disparity in knowledge, education, and access. And so when Ashley asks us, like, how is PrEP a reproductive rights and justice issue? I think it's about this issue of bodily autonomy and, and choices and options, right? And having the same um, options as your peers or your counterparts. I mean, the strategy and the use of PrEP has the potential to be incredibly empowering, especially as a tool for women who are experiencing intimate partner violence, if we were to bring that conversation back in, um, which is a, a risk factor for HIV um, and does require 
issues of negotiating, right? The use of a condom, those kinds of things that you started to name, Lisa, and um, can be taken autonomously by the individual without them having to communicate to another person that this is what they're doing to protect themselves, right? Um, And unfortunately, as you said, Lisa, many women are not aware of this availability. Few providers are encouraging them to use PrEP. Um, But we hope that there's more encouragement and more use of it that allows reproductive and sexual health and rights to be reflective of the conditions of of people's material conditions of their lives, right? Um, And to the extent to which a woman or anyone across gender can access accurate, relatable, and let's say culturally relevant and culturally responsive information and comprehensive information and medical services, um, that that also be made available to them. I mean, for Black women, again, all of these conditions can often serve as a barrier to accessing the care that they need and further complicate, are further complicated by racism and sexism and classism. Um, But historically, as Black women, and I just wanted to put this in here, we have been denied the ability to make decisions about our own bodies, right? So our work at Sister Love, at Black Women's Blueprint, is really about ensuring that women are supported in their efforts to practice and adopt action plans that are steeped and rooted in self-care and wellness and wholeness um, that is responsive to their their real life circumstances, right? That ev- women every day are experiencing um, and often being blamed for their vulnerabilities, right? Um, but really shifting the burden off of women and instead giving them the tools and the strategies to protect themselves and their sexual health, um, especially as they're often the last thought of in the midst of this, this um, epidemic. So I just wanted to build on that and also just reaffirm that we know that um, prep and the conversation of reproductive health and rights and justice is a, is about the broader spectrum of gender and of the broader exp- expression of identities. Um, but I think there is a place for centering of Black women in this conversation and that we don't often get the opportunity to have that outside of our organizations. who We are always centering Black women. Um, but to really do that here and just appreciating the space and the time um, to take that up. Yeah, and uh, you remind me that even as I talked about some of the work of Sister Love, we do a lot of community-led participatory research. And so, uh, because many times people come into the community to do research about the impact of a particular product on us and our bodies, and then when they get the information that they need, they leave. And one of the things that we've learned as a community-based partner, the research stays in the community and we stay in the community. And some of the research that we are looking to capture is what happens to women when they make a decision to take PrEP. And on on that first time and on that first prescription, there's a a tremendous drop off after that first prescription. Do you return to the doctor? And to be able to capture and understand all of the impact of the issues that you spoke about, Savannah, about, you know, care, trauma-informed care, how does that impact uh, a person's ability to return to a doctor when there's so much trauma to stay on a medication that requires a relationship with a provider that can talk to you about your sexual life, your sexual history, your experiences using something in a sexual conversation, the ability to be able to talk about sex and sexuality and intimacy and all of the things that impact intimacy, including intimate partner violence, is critical. And in those conversations, we are missing, in the lack of those conversations, we're missing the data and understanding as why there is such a drop-off after maybe a first prescription versus someone 
who is able to stay um, on PrEP, utilize PrEP, and to have an understanding of what does that population look like. But again, the opportunity for choice, even in the absence of choice in the situation that you may be in, is still critical. And what we are working to do continuously is lift up PrEP as a choice. And again, an important tool in your toolbox for the prevention and transmission of HIV. Thank you both. Um, I, I know everyone can't can't see me nodding along as they are speaking about uh, this. You know everything they've shared. It's just so powerful um, and and so just relevant to the conversations happening that I've been having. Um, you know, I I'm so appreciative of the conversations I've been able to have around prep and, and helping people understand the the fact that for so long survivors, they haven't had any choices. And this is just a tool for them to rebuild their autonomy, to feel like they are empowered to take back so much that has been taken away from them. Um, but Lisa, I agree with your your point around like what happens to folks once they get that first prescription. You know, if someone has had a history of, of really traumatic experiences with medical providers, that's going to, you know, create a barrier to, to continuing access with the a medical provider around this. Talking about intimate partner violence in itself is a barrier. For a lot of people, they don't want to discuss it. And if you do discuss it, how does the medical provider respond? You know, I feel like so often they're just like, it's a check a, a, a checkbox and then they move on to the next conversation. So it, it's so complicated um, around this, this conversation, but we have to do better as, as service providers um, but also in the medical medical community and how we're working with folks on PrEP and around intimate partner violence. Um, and, and Lisa, you mentioned um, kind of this, uh, the the piece around, do people know about PrEP? And I think it's so funny, maybe this be, this because I do the work, right? I talk about PrEP and HIV and intimate partner violence daily, but it seems like every time I turn on um, a TV, there's an advertisement for PrEP now. And and I'm just curious, like, and maybe that's just like, because I live in the South, I live in South Carolina where rates are higher. Um, but do you feel like this has had any kind of impact or changed the conversation on PrEP? It has, and unfortunately not in the direction that we'd hope. Um, typically, by the time you look at the commercial and you are seeing the players in the commercial, you, you begin to see a... Uh, uh, men, and then you begin to see uh, women, and then you hear the term assigned female at birth, that this may not be effective for assigned female at birth. And in, you know, in my work, I am exposed to new language, new terminology, and I understand that. But I've seen many people, by the time they decipher what that means, the commercial is over. And so they are still feeling like, I didn't see myself. You know, because when I saw the, the conversation assigned female at birth and I, I said, well, I just saw women. And then I, and then to be able to make the association that they may be trans women, you know, again, that is a, is a conversation that informed people need to have. And people who are in on some of the conversations as we talk about gender, gender not conforming, trans, trans people, you know, and by the time homophobia, transphobia, all phobias come in, we've missed the message. But again, the commercial is is at least the beginning of a conversation that there's something out there. And so then we begin to say, is that for me? So if you heard it or you saw it or it's something you might be able to say, may I talk to my doctor about it? 
And again, I, whenever I hear that, may I talk to my doctor, it's always the assumption that I have this wonderful doctor and that we have this wonderful partnership and we speak regularly and they're looking at the, the ongoing trends in the community around how to keep my safe sex. You know, because we're understanding, we used to send women out to doctors to have conversation about whether or not they were eligible for PrEP. And by the time they would ask them about their sexual history and 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 behaviors that may expose them to the to transmission of HIV, they were like, you're not a suitable candidate. And then, but they failed to ask them about the the behaviors of their partners and about whether or not their partner may be exposed to more than one or two or three or more uh, potential opportunities for the transmission of HIV. And those conversations don't seem to be heard. So again, these are the conversations that we are having as we do advocacy and education. We've had to do it throughout the 40-year history of HIV from the beginning where we had to remind people women do and get HIV. They have services and things of that nature. We had to begin to remind people that um, there are women who get HIV who may not have been born female at, uh, at birth. You know, we've had to look at how to have these conversations and as I look at Sister Love, we are an organization that has been founded for Black women in their communities. But when we talk about communities, we're talking about Black women. We're talking about their families. We're talking about their children and then their communities. So we always say, if you touch a Black woman, you touch a community because we will take care of a community. And this is why when you look at the issues that impact us as a whole, you know, these are the places where we are advocating and educating and informing women around why these types of choices are important to them, why this type of education is important to them, and why these new medical advances and research is important to our community survival. So um, these conversations are a game changer, at least in the sense of you might know that it's there. And if it starts another conversation and another question, then that to me is a good conversation to begin a conversation on. So I can tell you how it relates to you or you can say, what is that I just saw? Or you can Google it, or you can do whatever you do when you are exposed to something. Hey, wait a minute, did I just see something? So that to me is, is always the beginning of an opportunity and a teachable moment. Yeah, I think you you made such a great point around, you know, watching these these commercials and the language that's used and being able to see yourself. And I I completely understand that, kind of seeing other commercials and you're like, well, you know, I, I see that you're trying to market to me, but not really because, you know, you, you haven't used the right terminology or or whatever. Um, and I think that is such an important com- important piece of actually connecting and, and, and drawing on the drawing in those folks that that may benefit um, from from the medication. Um, and I, I also appreciate your point around like talk to your doctors, you know, and, they'll, and you'll have like this, you know, great conversation around how it can, uh, you know, help you. And I just think about all the times that I've gone to the doctor and how long does the doctor actually sit in there and talk to me? It's usually a five minute conversation. They like want to get in and out. It's not like, oh, well, how's the past three months been? You know, what's your sexual partners? Uh, how many sexual partners have you had? How many have they had? Like that does not happen. And I do work on around intimate partner violence. I can't even tell you how many doctors, even though they're supposed to, have asked me about intimate partner violence. Not many. So it's How just, many have asked about HIV? Right. It just doesn't happen. And and I think I think pharmaceutical companies want to believe that it is or that it should, which is all, you know, great. Yes, it should happen, but that's not the reality. Um, 
And, and like I said, for folks that are that are dealing with trauma, that have that history of trauma in the the, the me, with the medical field, that's definitely not happening. Um, you're you're just going to be so much more reserved in that conversation. Um, so thank you for for addressing and highlighting all those important pieces um, in this conversation. And I want to kind of circle back around. We were talking about um, um, uh, folks that are, are birthing uh, pregnant individuals. And I was wondering, because this conversation has come up a lot more recently, and, um, but how has HIV criminalization impacted birthing people? HIV criminalization impacts us simply the way policing of our community impacts our community. Uh, the moment you begin to bring the police into a conversation, then there becomes a place where injustices occur. So when you're talking about HIV criminalization, again, I've been talking about the science of HIV. The science is clear. HIV is not transmitted via saliva, but yet and still it is a felony if you spit on a, a corrections officer or a policeman. It's, it's not transmitted via feces. It's a felony if you throw it at anybody. Now, it may be nasty, but a felony, you know, it, it, you know, that's not what the science shows. And so I think it's, it's problematic when you're trying to talk to legislators because we've been doing a lot of advocacy. We've been using language around trying to lane, change the language when we're talking about um, birthing people. And we're looking at, you know, period around HIV criminalization. We've done much work around women who were who, have, who are pregnant and then begin to parent and want to think about breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is a natural, um, healthy, safe way to, to, to feed your children. We've seen from the science and the research that even in countries such as Africa, where there may be an absence of clean water and there may be an absence of formula, that breastfeeding is best. Uh, breastfeeding is best is not a message that is, is pushed here. And if you even have a conversation about uh, breastfeeding, your doctor can um, criminalize you in the sense that we've seen and had to advocate on behalf of women who have lost their children simply because they brought up the conversation and not including just the, the child that they've born. All of the children was removed from their home. As if, you know, we saw a case where a woman was, you know, had a C-section, missed her visit. And since she had raised the issue with her doctor, you know, as a as a mom about the possibility of breastfeeding, when they didn't see her, the doctor immediately was concerned, is she at home trying to breastfeed? And instead of calling and trying to check in with the patient to see how they're doing and what they might need, protective services was called in and all of the children was removed. And I'm thinking, what were you thinking? <laughs> you know, why would that be an option? Why is policing? So the criminalization is really directly tied to the understanding of HIV and its transmission. We now have, you know, understanding that you cannot take transmit HIV if you're taking your medication and uh, it is untransmittable. You know, so now you're talking about if you're pregnant doing a uh, and you find out you are also um, living with HIV, the focus is more so on the fetus in terms of making sure that you don't transmit HIV to the fetus. The focus is so much on the, the fetus that by the time the mother gives birth, we've been seeing some of the trends is that the, the mother, uh, the parenting uh, mother is dropping out of care. And so we're only concerned about whether or not the, the infant has um, HIV and whether or not they 
convert it later. And so we know that there's lots of science to prevent the transmission of HIV during uh, pregnancy for birthing people. We know that there are uh, ways that you can support birthing people around their living with HIV and the transmission of HIV to the unborn child. So all of these conversations need to be had in a way that are not related to criminalization. But until the science catches up with lawmakers, and typically we're seeing that more lawmakers are uh, those who don't have um, the ability to offer to to parent a a birth, but yet and still the conversation is about what's going on in the, the uteruses of people who are having children. And so this is part of the advocacy that we as a community have to continue to do. We have to continue to educate about the science. Do you know that if you take your HIV medication, that you are unable to transmit HIV if your viral load is suppressed and um, and your T cells are high? This is what we've learned through the science. So why is there still a criminal factor? Why is it still a felony? And even in the state of Georgia, if you do not disclose, there's a felony. So when we're looking at at Birthing people living with HIV, criminalization can impact them across the spectrum simply because of the current laws that are on the books in many states around the transmission of HIV and disclosure. And so when stigma is high, criminalization is high. And we've seen that. And also the desire to police is high, then criminalization impact is also high. I feel like you said it all, Lisa, and I I would just say that there's this ongoing and I think a rise and intersection between the medical industrial complex and the criminal justice system. Like we are dealing with this on multiple levels. And when we talk about these intersections of pregnancy and HIV and survivorship, right, there are all of these ways. I love what you said. When stigma is high, criminalization is also high. And so I think that that um, means that our work, again, to de-silo our work, right? Between IPV advocates, HIV advocates, reproductive justice advocates, like we we have to come together to come up with a comprehensive kind of integrative plan that addresses and tackles all of these systemic issues that are perpetuated against the individual, right? At the end of the day, and then more largely against communities. Um, And that requires all of our work um, and a coming together that is deeply entrenched, I think, in advocacy and destigmatizing. And this is what is exciting about this partnership for me, is the understanding of how we begin to remove silos, how we understand how the intersectionality of all our lives matter. So when you talk about Black Lives Matter and the intersectionality of our mattering, it is the understanding of the multiple things that impact us as as birthing people, as people who have been impacted by intimate partner violence, as people who are exposed to the the risk of HIV, as we look at maternal and infant mortality, all of the issues that impact us, I find that the more partnerships I have, the more I'm able to speak about the multiple issues that impact us as a people and able to advocate and come together as a community or support research or look at a broadened agenda. And to me, this is exciting about partnerships. So the more we learn, the more I can talk to you about some of the issues and concerns. But an informed community is then an active advocating community. And so I'm delighted about the ways that we are 
partnering to educate each other and educate the community about the importance of the intersectionality of everything, because as we've learned, we are people who do not live single issue lives. And so the more we can look at these issues, the more excited I am about the possibility and the realities of making changes. So every legislative session, we get a little bit closer. And I also see that we've had 30 years of legislative sessions and we're about to lose some, you know, um, freedom such as abortion. But I know that this is, it has made it clear to me what my life's work is, my life's education work is, and I am a strong activist and advocate until the very end. And so I thank you for the opportunity to partner with both of these organizations. Thank you, Lisa, for, for talking about that. Um, uh, I, I just was thinking about, um, as you were telling us the story about the the woman who inquired about breastfeeding and then her doctor, you know, contacted um, uh, Child Protective Services and just thinking about like, not only the trauma of criminalization and the trauma of the medical field um, that's being inflicted upon her, but also this generational trauma from the involvement of the Child Protective Services that those children are going to have to experience. Uh, it's It's so layered and again, goes back to those, um, not living single issue lives, right? There's so many different things happening. For those that are um, living with HIV, understanding that their interactions with healthcare providers can have negative impacts, even though they need those relationships, right? For their for their medications, for their health and well-being, um, but how that can have this greater impact on their life beyond just themselves, um, I think is so important. And I think we're going to have so many great conversations around social determinants of health um, and the partnerships that the three of us have. And I think I just see so many of these things layered upon layer um, and the work. So, yeah. And you also, you know, even as I listened to Svana talk, I realized that once she began to, she was home recovering, missed an appointment because she was recovering from a, a C-section. So now her work and effort is going toward getting her children back, understanding what happened, why she's being policed. So now she's no longer focused on her care and her well-being. And we look at what happens when all of that energy becomes part of a trauma that then impacts your maternal health and how you might become another statistic because somebody decided that they were protecting their, they were going to criminalize you because of your medical condition. And then how might that impact your maternal survival it just makes me really see, you know, the intersecting ways that we as a community harm birthing people. I think what you're describing, too, is like this concept that Arlene Geronimus offers us, which is about weathering, right? It's the toxic stress. It's the multiple factors. It's the superimposed traumas of racism, sexism, hypercriminalization, hypervigilance. Um, militarized police presence that Black women and brown women and Indigenous women are constantly interacting with and interfacing with on top of creating new life, right? On top of being pregnant and navigating the healthcare system, on top of navigating um, 
economic depression and economic survival on top of managing their health and generational health and generational impacted issues of safety. And all of these pieces are coming around them and wrapping around them in the midst of of this milestone in their life, right? And then we look up and we see issues of maternal mortality and morbidity. We see fetal and maternal demises. We see um, negative perinatal outcomes. And we have yet to bridge, you know, these concepts and bridge and integrate um, this understanding of how did we get here, right? Like what are also the intergenerational violences that are integrated and the intergenerational traumas that are integrated in the body that the person is carrying with them forward into this new life, right? There's also... um, evidence that there's perinatal and in utero trauma that is experienced from this toxic stress. So when we look at like low birth weight and infant um, birth weight and infant mortalities, that toxic stress is not only transition to the mother or to the parenting person or the pregnant person, but also to the fetus, right? And I think that there's not um, an understanding of the, the constellation of these two beings, or if they're twins or multiples, that are orbiting around one another and that are also surviving Um, and trying to preserve vitality in the midst of all of these toxic stressors um, that are impacting both of their survival um, rates and the the survival capacities. So I think that that's a deep, we could have a whole podcast conversation just around like the transmission of harm and trauma and toxic stress um, and how that impacts maternal mortality and and, um, even witnessing traumas like police brutality and violence on TV impacts maternal health and vitality, right? Um, So there's so much, I think, to unpack there around what conditions we need to create, what capacity building we need to do in the movement and in the field um, to actually bring our approaches to a more integrative space and de-siloed space. Absolutely. So we've had a some really great conversation. Um, uh, and I, I just kind of want to, I want to end on a positive note, right? Cause we've had some, some really tough things to, to, to talk about. And, and, um, I'm hoping that each of you maybe can share what is bringing you hope and what's bringing you joy right now as we close out. I think the interventions that Black women are weaving together are bringing me hope and bringing me joy. The training of midwives, the training of doulas, the kind of creative approaches to sexual and reproductive health, the creative interventions, the artistic interventions, the um, the ways that we take up space in the streets and lift our voices and um, integrate culture and our humanity and constantly claim and reclaim our humanity, even in the face of all that we've discussed today. I think that there's a lot of possibility and a lot of miracles and a lot of way making on the other side of these moments. And I actually think we're like moving into something powerful, right? We're moving into something that where we actually can inform the White House gender policy um, table right? We're, we're moving into conversations where we're bringing our full selves and our organic selves um, to these national platforms and national stages and demanding what we're owed and what we deserve, um, which is our body autonomy, which is our, our, our right to choose, which is our right to educate ourselves and be well, right? We can actually be whole and be well, like we deserve um, to be well. So I'm really inspired by Black women and the creative interventions that they're putting in place and the strategies that we've always used in a reproductive justice framework since we created it ourselves um, and the iterations of it that are forthcoming. So those are the kinds of things that keep me hopeful and inspired and the fresh ideas that come from doulas and birth workers and midwives who are seeking to be trauma-informed and integrate a mandate of sexual health in all of their work. 
I am excited about our creativity. And as um, I talked about before, our creativity in terms of creating partnerships to save ourselves. I'm excited about the leadership that we have taken on as a people to look at research in our own community. I'm excited about the fact that we truly abide by the conversation. We are the ones we have been waiting for. So we know that we are not going to be rescued by a new policy, a new shift in in, in, in politics, um, a new this, a new that, that we are the newness that we seek. And so we begin to tell our stories. And so as we begin to ask questions about healthy love, it is a conversation that we want to know and have. Is your love healthy? Is your life healthy? Is your community healthy? And as we begin to ask those questions, we want to say yes. And so as we begin these conversations, I'm looking at the way that we educate providers, we educate ourselves, that we respond to traumas. We are naming them. We are listing them. We are responding to them. We understand that if you don't know, then ask and we will respond. And if we don't know, we will look until we get the answers. And so I believe that we as a community trust ourselves. We lean on the work of our ancestors. We lean on the ones that have come before us and we lean on the future that is in front of us. And so we understand that continuum of life and we make choices as a community and as 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 a strong stronghold, I believe, that there is power in our love and our partnerships and that we are manifesting that. So I believe in us and um, every success, every failure is all a part of my creation and our creation and that we use those tools to grow and to thrive and that we will survive and thrive. And so I believe in us and I'm excited about us. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Savannah. Um, so appreciative of the conversation we've had today. It's been really great. It's been such a pleasure just to be here with you both. And um, I'm really looking forward to our continued work and to see kind of how our partnership together kind of blossoms over the next, you know, year, two years and so on. And thank you all to our listeners. Uh, we appreciate you being here with us and we do hope that you will tune in uh, to our next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and at nnedv.org. Thanks for listening.